This is a case from the Shoyoroku. Jinshan asks about nature. The introduction. One who hears the elephants crossing the river is still affected by the current. One who hears that the nature of life is unborn is still held back by life. If you go on talking about before concentration and after concentration, making bamboo shoots and making bamboo ropes, you will be marking the boat when the sword is long gone, kicking the wheel of potential into motion. How can you particularly travel down the one road? Let's try to bring it up, the main case. Master Jinshan asked Master Zhuishan, clearly knowing the unborn nature of life, why are we stayed by life? Zhuishan said, bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo, but if you use them now to make ropes, can you make them serve the purpose? Jinshan said, later on, you'll be enlightened on your own. Zhuishan said, I'm just this way. What is your meaning? Jinshan said, this is the monastery's superintendent's quarters. That is the cook's quarters. Zhuishan then bowed. The verse. Empty and at ease, without dependence, lofty and serene, untrammeled, home and country, peaceful. Those who arrive are rare. A little bit of power divides ranks and grades. The fluid, clear mind and body is beyond right and wrong. Right and wrong ended, standing alone on earth. There is no beaten track. The last line, standing alone on earth, there is no beaten track. That last line of the verse goes directly to the heart of the matter and reveals everything as is, as wide open. But if there is no beaten track, what is this path that we follow? What kind of roadmap have we inherited from past teachers in our traditions? There's no particular track to follow in this wide and open reality. Yet, as practitioners, we're encouraged to adhere to a very particular kind of practice and be very disciplined about maintaining a precise schedule, especially during Sashi. While there is no beaten track, there is a specific way to sit, to bow, to chant, to walk, to eat. Everything has procedures. Why is that? Why are we doing it? Why should we be doing this? Master Umman once asked his disciples, or said to his disciples, the world is wide and vast like this. 
Why do you put on the robes at the sound of the bell? Why? A question we ask ourselves, we ask each other, a question we wrestle with. Now, what Master Uman is pointing at, and what most people have very tough time recognizing, is the fact that while the world is vast, wide, and untrammeled, and there is no path to follow, in fact, we are tethered to and infatuated with a very particular kind of path. That is, before we even think of practice, and often that is while we are practicing, we already walk a particular kind of path. And we may call this path the Tower of Convention. And being on that path, the vastness of the world shrinks down to divisions, to hierarchies, to before and after, mountain and city, you and I, and on and on and on. And when the world shrinks down, our sense of self also becomes very small, very frightened, and it gives rise to a false sense of insecurity and a need, justifiable need, to divide reality, grasp or reject bits and pieces of it based on whether or not it is on my side or on the other side, whether or not I benefit from it or is it a threat. And it manifests in the way we see, the way we interpret what we see, and the way we come to conclusions. And in the kind of conclusions and actions that we are propelled to take as a result of these interpretations. And it's a very defined and well-organized path that, in fact, shoves us into a box from which we try to interact with each other and with the world. You know, we, we look at practice and it seems very defined and organized and disciplined. But we don't realize how defined and organized and disciplined we are already about the path we are following or the path our minds follow. So we try to interact with reality or with each other from within a box, a predetermined, predesigned box. And of course, it's no wonder that we feel held back by life. Held back by what's not, what does not seem to be on our side. But is it life itself? 
that is holding us back? Or is it the way we perceive it? This koan brings up a dialogue between Jinshan and Zhishan, both Dharma brothers, both studied other, under Master Dijang and succeeded to him. And at the time that this dialogue took place, they were both already Dharma teachers. So Jinshan, who was the elder of the two, asked Zhishan a very reasonable question, isn't it? Right? Clearly knowing the unborn nature of life, Knowing, understanding the true nature of life. Why are we stayed by life? How is it possible? To be stayed by life means to get entangled by everyday interactions, by our feelings, by the way other people behave. Regrets, our own regrets, expectations, disappointments. And by the mere fact that we are of an impermanent nature, and it doesn't matter what we do, we are going to perish. But what he's asking here is, what about those who embark on a spiritual path? such as Zen, right? And the expectation is that the practice will eventually lead to disentangling the mess that is holding us back. And we, as diligent practitioners on the path, will eventually experience freedom. As long as we follow the procedures. No, the practice does reveal the unborn nature of life. That means the recognition that everything is constantly changing. That we are of an impermanent nature and that nothing can be held on to since there's nobody that can grasp. Life is unborn since it does not begin at the moment you took your first breath. And it doesn't end on your last breath. It's unborn, it's undying, it has no beginning, it has no end. Yeah, we get it. We understand it. Maybe even clearly understand this. Why are we still held back? What is holding us back? Probably the better question to ask. So to recognize that life is essentially unborn. At the time of the Buddha, this recognition was considered the first step of spiritual development. It was called Srotapanna or river finder. It was in reference to practitioners who found the river of impermanence and saw the existence of all things as dependent on countless causes and conditions and thus devoid of any self-nature. And so the river finder was the one who saw things as they are, as no things. 
And this is from Bill Porter, Red Pine. So and yet, we can clearly know that this is the way life is and still get caught up by that which has no power to hold us back. In the commentary, to make this point, the commentary brings up a related story about how Zhishan found himself held back and entangled, entangled and reactive, actually. While Zhishan was studying with Dijang, two monks came to visit his teacher and bowed as they were about to leave. Dijang said, both wrong. Neither of these monks said anything and just left. Later, they went to Zhishan, he was a senior monk there, and asked him to explain why Dijang said wrong. And Zhishan said, you yourself are magnificent and outstanding, yet you bow to someone else. Isn't that wrong? When Jinshan, Jinshan, who was the head monk at the time, heard about this answer, he disapproved of it and told Zhishan, you yourself are deluded and ignorant. How can you help others? Now you can imagine what that does when you hear this, right? As a devout practitioner, a senior practitioner probably at the time, right? The head monk comes and says, you are deluded and ignorant. How can you help anybody if you deal with people in such a way? So he wasn't happy about this. And he went to Dijang, the teacher, trying to figure out a way to deal with it or complain. And Dijang listened to him, looked at him, then pointed down the hall and said, the cook went down to the pantry. Now, upon hearing this, Rishan realized his error. He realized what was holding him back. He realized that what was holding him back had nothing to do with the statement, you are ignorant and deluded. Of course, first he felt that the way he answered the two monks, the two traveling monks, was very fitting. He became very self-righteous about that. So when the head monk rebuked him for being deluded and ignorant, he immediately felt defensive, wanted to push back, to resist. It's a very easy story to relate to. How often does it happen to us that we are disapproved by another person? Or how about being disapproved by somebody who we admire, somebody who we see as a leader, a teacher, a senior? What does it do to us? Right? It stirs things up. We feel completely out of souls. Maybe feel like we have nothing to stand on. Right? I was standing on the understanding that I have an understanding. 
and it was taken away from me. What's left? What am I relying on? You know, that, on that path, conventional path, the self that lives through the thinking mind is always possessive of its ground. And when it's threatened, it will jump on any opportunity to reclaim lost territories. It's always on the guard, on the lookout, watching, protecting. When we think we're right, we create a gap. We disconnect, we detach. When we think we're wrong, we create a gap. We disconnect and detach. It really doesn't matter what the thought says. It takes us away from the unborn. It's right here, right now, yet. In a way, we put right here, right now on the back burner so we can take care of this person, that situation, correct it, rectify. Pick up the pieces, then get back to this. But what if this doesn't wait? What if time swiftly passes by? You know, for practitioners, the gap or misalignment is often between what we understand and the way we speak and act. Between what we think we are clear about and whether or not it manifests. What gives birth to this gap? How is it that we can have clear understanding of the way things are and still become powerless and still get triggered and reactive, still feel defensive and then feel the need to do something about it. And what if we do nothing about it? What if when we feel defensive, reactive, raw, what if at such a moment or such moments we do nothing? We have to ask, you know, if we really believe that the reason we get bent out of shape is because somebody said something or did something we don't like. Or is it due to circumstances that appear to be in opposition with us? Is that the reason our understanding remains unactualized, unactualized, remains locked in our head and commonly speaking of course the answer would be a resounding yes of course and the explanation can be very easily found on the path of, of convention 
logically speaking, of course. There is a reason why I am pissed off. Here is the reason. He or she or the situation. Because before this happened, I was fine. A minute ago, I was fine. But what kind of fine is that if it's so easily turned upside down? What is that fine relying on? Is it really fine? How am I now? You know, this is one of the things that we develop. Strength, spiritual strength over time with practice. So then when we encounter something, it's there. The connection is there. The link is there. If only it is a priority. We don't forget so quickly. But then there is a problem with that, which is what this koan is bringing up. There is an issue with this, right? I am practicing. I've been practicing for a month, two months, five years, three years, 20 years. And I am gradually, slowly developing the ability, the spiritual power, the capacity to withstand, to take, to be able to deal with adversaries, issues, challenges. And that will happen later. Who knows when this later happens? And maybe more importantly, what happens until this later becomes reality? In other words, what about now? What about today? What about just like this, as is? As is. Is it possible? Is it available? And this is what Yushan is pointing at in the way he's dealing with Jinshan's question. And he's using a very simple and logical analogy. And he says, bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo. But if you use them now for bamboo ropes, can you make them serve the purpose? An earlier text from the time of the Buddha, there was a story that raises the same point in a slightly different way. Once the Buddha and the congregation were invited to a feast at the house of a rich merchant, and during the meal, Manjushri asked, is there anyone who knows the unborn nature of life and is held back by life? And a young girl by the name Antisha was present, and she got up and said, yes, there is. The one who clearly sees, but his strength is not yet sufficient, is held back by life. The one who clearly sees, but yet 
the strength is not yet sufficient. You know, and both Antisha and Zhrishan's answer actually make perfect sense. You know, with the analogy of the bamboo. Back in those days, they used to peel off the outer layer of a mature bamboo and weave it into a rope. So obviously, if you take a young bamboo plant, it's not going to work. So the analogy actually makes sense. In regards to our practice, the tradition, our traditions have plenty of references and examples of what we call spiritual maturation process, which takes time and is identified through stages and levels such as Dongshan's five ranks, the ten ox herding pictures, the Buddha's four jhana levels. And we have Jukai, some of you have taken, some are not. In Soto, we have two levels of priesthood, Dharma holder position, a sensei, a roshi, the Rinzai traditions, ordained practitioners, an osho, a roshi, maybe a sensei too. So there are plenty of reasons to actually hold on to practicing from this perspective of levels and gradations and not yet, not yet, not yet. I will, but not now. So we come into practice from a mind that divides everything to gradations, to levels, to any divisions. And then we enter a practice that also, in a way, has it in it, right? But do we understand the difference between the mind's divisions and the way practice is structured. Or do we do with the practice what we do with everything else in life? And that is, instead of changing ourselves when we encounter something, when we encounter teachings, we have a strong tendency to change the teaching to fit us. So we don't have to work so hard on actually letting go and changing. We do it with a lot of amazing ancient traditions, such as, for example, yoga. You know, a lot of us are yoga practitioners. Well, who needs music in yoga? I mean, do we need to be entertained? Somebody was telling me a story. They went to a, a yoga class and uh, the, this, the teacher could not work out uh, the audio system. It was a 45-minute class. She spent 20 minutes trying to figure out why it's not working while everybody was just waiting. Half a class was wasted. Teach yoga. What's wrong with that? Right? We want everything changed to make it comfortable for us. 
So we walk into practice, or we are in practice for a long time still. Are we practicing correctly? Are we truly understanding that all of this is upaya? All of it. The practice doesn't need that. We need that. Because it is a, all of it is a skillful way or skillful ways to get us closer to what is already happening, to what is unborn, to what is always aside or a part of gradations and levels and hierarchies and before and after. And if we don't use those skillfully, those elements skillfully, we can become very quickly hindered by a path that is meant to point to unbound, vast reality. So where are we in the practice? You know, we, I think we all think about this from time to time. Maybe if we just entered practice, it's easy. Well, I'm a beginner, right? But then after some time goes by, what are we? No longer beginners? Intermediate, advanced, super advanced, in between, lost maybe? And then, you know, every one of those steps, rungs, steps, levels, in our minds, it comes with, they come with already set of should and should not. By now, I already should know this, understand that, practice like this, not be trapped anymore. Or, by now, I'm not yet sufficient, so of course I'm going to get trapped, and of course I'm going to mess up, Well, we all mess up, right? Whether, we, whether it is a part of the job description of the rank you think you're at, messing up is something we all do, and that's fine. In fact, it doesn't get in the way. Messing up does not get in the way of seeing clearly and actualizing clearly. So on a path that is unborn and undying, that has no beginning and no end. Does it matter where we are? Do we know? Can we point at where we are? And with all this, where are we going? And when do we know we have arrived? Is it possible? And if there is no way to know if we have arrived somewhere, what are we left with? All that there is is how we practice.
how we do what we do. Not where are we going with this. Not where we think we came from and how far we think we've got. All of it, irrelevant. The footnote under the question, clearly knowing the unborn nature of life while we stayed by life, says, watch for the nose pin. Watch for the nose pin. And this is the nose pin on an ox that is used to lead the ox in different directions. Watch for the nose pin. You know, if I think that I am intermediate, not yet there, there is a nose pin, and the nose pin is tethered, is attached to what comes with that level I think I'm on or at. And I'm stuck because I truly believe that this is where I'm at. Or at least I truly believe that I am not there yet. I am not sufficient yet. My understanding is limited. And if my understanding is limited, I have a lot more freedom to fool around, right? to not maybe be wholehearted. I said many times, we talked about it a lot, that with this practice, whether or not you take Jukai is actually not as important as the understanding that as soon as you step into practice, we are, you are all, expected to walk this path and practice the 16 Bodhisattva precepts from day one. To practice wisdom from day one. Nobody's saying, later on, you will have to deal with those precepts. For now, don't worry about it. For now, don't worry about the three pure precepts. I will do no harm. I will do good. I will do good for others. You can do some harm now. It's okay. Because you're not there yet. Because you're insufficient. Nobody's saying that. We say that. The practice does not divide. Also, watch for the nose pain. You know, abdicating responsibility. I am pissed off because this guy said that I'm ignorant and deluded and I'm no good. Watch for the nose pin. Here, it's like we are giving that chain to that person saying, well, until you say something else, I am at your mercy. I am at the mercy of your words. No, I'm at the mercy of your opinion about me. Watch for the nose pain. Watch the way or the ways in which we abdicate responsibilities. 
You know, in Aikido, most of you know I practice Aikido, I teach Aikido. In Aikido, we have two parts of practice. There is Uke and Nage. Nage is the one who is doing the technique, and Uke is the one who is attacking and following. And Ukemi, Ukemi is what Uke does. So it, goes, it begins from attacking correctly to following the technique to flowing with it. And in a nutshell, ukemi, is, is, it can be called as the art of skillfully going with the flow. And it has a very important physical component that is acquired over time. But more important than that, and it is actually, you do become more flexible, you do become more flowing, but more important than that, or the most important challenging trait Uke needs to express is the willingness to change. The willingness to change. And that's what it always comes down to. It's not how flexible, how fast you are, how well you fall. Maybe you don't fall so well. Fall like a sack of potato, which is fine. What about the willingness to change? Does that take time? The internal agreement to be in alignment with constant change. And that does not depend on flexibility. And I'm saying it from experience, and some of you are practicing know that. You can have very flexible practicing partners completely stuck, completely unwilling to change. Or they will change when it fits them. The willingness to change. That is true for Aikido, that is true for Zen, that is true for life. How do you move when you trust that people and circumstances have the power to hold you back? What is the state of your practice when you convince that later you will have sufficient power to be present? Later you will, you will not be so easily triggered and reactive. What about now? What happens until then, what about the harm that we cause to ourselves, to others, when we believe this to be true? What about the quality of our everyday life when we believe that later will be better? What do we reject? What are we unwilling to appreciate in the meantime? What if later never comes? Because later never comes. What if this is as good as it gets?
And this does not mean we don't work on things. It doesn't mean we don't improve abilities, capacities, capabilities. For the rest of our lives, we work on things. For the rest of our lives, we deepen our understanding. You know, we ask many questions, and many of our questions are actually kind of the same. You know, and in Dokusan, Dharma teachers encounter very similar questions. And those are questions that every practitioner asks, right? Even Dharma teachers, obviously, you know, I ask many questions. I don't ask them anymore. I ask other questions. And I deepen, and I deepen, and I deepen. And it never ends. It never ends. How far we... It's amazing, you know, that 5, 10, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't have a clue how it will feel today. How amazingly beautiful everything will appear. How much love I will be able to feel towards everything. How could I know? How can we know? Why do we have to know? We continuously grow. We continuously change and learn. But do we have to reject the one who is not yet somewhere else, as our minds think? Is it not sufficient now? Sufficient for what? There's a related verse that speaks of our beliefs that we are insufficient and actually how it affects the way we live. I sent that in a recent email about how we work with Ango with a training period. It says, Pity that my mind is clear, but my power is insufficient. Time after time, seeds produce manifest patterns. Like a man gone crazy from wine, no sooner sworn off drink than finding some more fine liquor. And this is talking about our habitual patterns which, of course, we have to work with. Which, of course, feel as if they hinder us and block us. In reference to this, Yuan, Yuan Wu, who compiled this collection, says, this too is talking about strength being insufficient. And he says, I confess that the ancients were so familiar with the doctrinal vehicle that whenever they spoke out, it was in accord with the scriptures. Because it's true. It's true that we feel this way. It's true that we have old patterns. There is karma. And it has a lot of power. 
but it doesn't cover up this. It doesn't cover up you. Although it can be very distracting. Although it can, and it does, knock us down really badly again and again. It knocks us down. We get up, here it is again. It knocks us down, we get up, here it is again. Where's the problem? What is the issue? What is really preventing us from experiencing this fully? What is holding you back? Introduction to this Quran is raising a very important point that we have to understand and work with in relation to how to practice or what is practicing, what is practicing uh, requiring of us this practice or that tradition when we talk about being wholehearted. And it says, the one who hears the scent-bearing elephant has already gone with the flow. Even one who knows that birth is unborn is stayed by birth. If you go on talking about before concentration and after concentration, making bamboo shoots and making bamboo ropes, you'll be marking the boat when the sword is long gone. That's from the introduction. And this is in reference to a paragraph from the Nirvana Sutra, which talks about the different ways to maintain practice. And it's using an analogy of three animals crossing a river, an elephant, a horse, and a rabbit. And it says that when a rabbit crosses the river, it scoots across the surface. When a horse crosses the river, sometimes its feet touch the bottom, and sometimes it is floating and the feet do not touch, which is neither here nor there. But when an elephant crosses the river, its feet always touch bottom firmly. And some commentators say that the Japanese word tete, which means thoroughly, comes from this story about how elephant walks. And all this is actually just saying that our Zen practice must be thorough and firm-footed like an elephant who walks in the river. Firm-footed. And firm-footed even when we lose our balance. So firm-footed when we fall down, firm-footed when we get up. Which really means not judging. Being wholehearted and not measuring wholeheartedness based on personal experiences. Or regaining wholehearted attitude again and again. And the scent-bearing elephant, Sozan Zenji once brought this up, this story up, and asked Elder Toku, in what sutras does the passage appear saying that the Bodhisattva hears the fragment elephant crossing the river while in Samadhi? Elder Toku said the Nirvana Sutra. Sozan then asked, does he hear it before Samadhi or does he hear it after Samadhi? Elder Toku said he hears it in Samadhi.
And Susan brought it up to test Elder Toku and see if he's still stuck in before and after. And the introduction is, to, is taking the point or this point further. And it tells us that as long as we hold on to ranks and levels of understanding, we miss the opportunities to practice. We miss life itself. And the line you'll be marking the boat when the sword is long gone is referring to a story where a warrior's sword fell into the water during a boat ride. And when it fell down into the water, he quickly marked the side of the boat so he knows the spot to go back and look for the sword. Right? So it's a strange analogy, right? But we do crazy things. Crazy things like judging ourselves, like labeling ourselves, like disparaging the Buddha, which means to think we're not there right now, to think we're incomplete and insufficient right now. So Zhishan said, bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo. But if you use them now for ropes, well, can you make them serve their purpose? And the footnote right there says his nose is in another's hand. Just by raising this question, we are already saying, I am not there. My nose is in another's hand. Well, who is holding it? Who is going to make the decision? Who is going to stamp your head, your forehead, and say, you've arrived. Now you can practice. And Jinshan said, later on you'll be enlightened on your own. Jinshan said, I'm just this way. What is your meaning? And Jinshan said, this is the monastery superintendent's quarters, and this is the cook's quarters. And the footnote right there says, he hit the ball to another place. He hit the ball to another place. From where to where? He stepped out of the conventional path. Where is that other place? Is it another place? Is there another time in which we will be sufficient? And this footnote is revealing everything again. This other place is the vast, unbound path we need to recognize, we need to step into as we step out of the conventional path. This shore is the other shore. We need to hear it again and again and again and again. Empty and at ease, without dependence, lofty and serene, untrammeled, Home and country peaceful. Those who arrive are rare. Who 
home and country peaceful. Those who arrive are rare. Why is it? If it's here, if it's now, if it's today, why only few realize it? Watch for the nose pin. Watch for the nose pin. Watch the way you abnegate responsibility. A little bit of power divides ranks and grades. The footnote says, forcibly creating subdivisions. It's made up. Forcibly creating. The fluid, clear mind and body is beyond right and wrong. And the footnote says, if you see the strange as not strange, the strangeness disappear of itself. <clears throat> of course, right and wrong feels familiar. No right, no wrong feels odd, feels strange. Vast, bound, unlimited, ungraded. How do we function within this? We don't know, right now, later, earlier, you, me. It does feel strange. But when you see it as not strange, the strangeness disappears of itself. Standing alone on earth, there is no beaten track. In commentary to another koan, Tenkei Denson says, Before, there is the bright sun and the blue sky with nothing to ask and nothing to say. After, too, there is the bright sun, the blue sky with nothing to ask and nothing to say. Even so, if that were all there is to it, our heritage would end. The way of Zen would be destroyed. This is what is meant by the expression, the stagnant water of transcendence. This is true. There is no before and there is no after. And it's also very true that it takes time, perseverance, and courage. It's also true that there is such thing as spiritual maturation process. But it's not saying you're not there. It's not saying you're insufficient. As the Buddha said, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. Who is separating? We don't need a stamp on our forehead to, be, to fully embrace this practice. We don't need to arrive anywhere else. This is the time. This is the place. This is the one. The one sitting on the cushion. This is the one who is fully capable of living as a bodhisattva. 
So the question is, are we enacting it today? Thank you.